0: Well, who is Robert Philip Hansen? Bet you don't recognize this guy. I'm glad you asked. He worked for the FBI, uh, but he spied for Russia against the United States from 1979 to 2001. Uh, Hansen sold thousands of classified documents uh, that belonged to the US. Uh, to the KGB that that detailed uh, U.S. strategies in the event of nuclear war, a development of of nuclear weapons technologies, and and aspects of the U.S. counterintelligence program for a period of 22 years. He was divulging these secrets. Uh, Hansen was arrested, uh, finally, on February 18, 2001. And these investigations uh, revealed that over this period of 22 years, uh, he had sold tons of documents and earned over a million, I think $1.4 million in cash and diamonds uh, for his treachery. And uh, prosecutors were dealing with him. He was subject to the death penalty uh, for these acts of treason. But to avoid the death penalty, uh, he pleaded guilty to 14 counts of espionage. And uh, he was sentenced to 15 consecutive life terms in prison without the possibility of parole. And even right now, uh, 20 years later, uh, he's sitting in solitary confinement in a jail cell in Florence, Colorado, uh, for his own safety, because they know if he was in the general population, he'd be (laughs) killed. And unless he's transferred somewhere else, uh, he's gonna die there in prison. Well, why would he do such a thing? What would motivate actions like that? It's simple, really, right? It's greed, living in the U.S. and with all the advantages that the U.S. provided that got him into college at Northwestern and, and got him this incredible job in the FBI. Uh, that wasn't enough for him. He wanted more. And when he was arrested, he said, you know, I have no political ideology here. Uh, there's, there's no motive here other than money. I just wanted financial gain. That's all it was. And so he sold out his country for money. And then if that wasn't bad enough, not only was he a traitor, but he was a false witness for Christ. This same man had a wife and six kids, and his wife taught theology in the uh, local um, uh, private school where his kids attended. His six kids all attended this private school, uh, and uh, they, they went there, it was a Catholic school, and uh, his priest testified that for a period of 10 years he was at 6 30 a.m mass every single day for a period of 10 years so by all appearances hansen is this incredible american right this incredible family man and uh, a witness for christ and of course as we know witnesses or appearances can be deceiving right And Hanson's story, of course, brings us to Judas's story. Uh, Judas spent three-plus years with Jesus. He heard everything that Jesus taught. He saw the miracles that Jesus did. Uh, But though he followed Jesus, he was never really a true and committed disciple. He never put his faith in Jesus. Uh, Judas's allegiance was to himself. Uh, to his greed, to his agenda, to his motives. Uh, And like Hansen wasn't satisfied with the U.S. and what it provides, uh, Judas was not satisfied with Jesus and what he provides. Judas wanted more money, wanted more power, wanted to overthrow Rome, wanted to fulfill his agenda and wanted to use Jesus as a tool to fulfill that agenda. And so uh, he was a spy with valuable inside information. And so he negotiated a deal with the Jewish leaders to betray Jesus, to turn him over uh, to the, the authorities for 30 pieces of silver. You know, it took 22 years for the United States to figure out what Hansen was doing and to finally catch him. But Jesus knew everything that Judas was doing. From day one, he knew what was in Judas' mind, he knew what Judas' motives were, and he knew the crushing betrayal that was coming. So Judas appeared to be this follower of Jesus, uh, but he turned out to be anything but that. So today we're going to be looking at, uh, continuing in the upper room, John 13, verses 18 through 30. Remember, we're with Jesus and his disciples in the upper room uh, on the night before Jesus died. And in the passage last week that we looked at, remember Jesus washed his disciples' feet and he said, uh, if you know these things, if you understand why I do these things, then you'll go out and you will do the same things yourselves because this is what a true disciple does. We serve each other. We love each other. But today we'll be looking at the actions of the one false disciple who was in the upper room. And we'll see that in this passage, Jesus predicted Judas' betrayal and then offered Judas one last opportunity for to receive His grace, so Judas, uh, Jesus predicts His own betrayal, verses eighteen to twenty. I'm not speaking about all of you. I know the ones whom I have chosen, but this is happening so that the Scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats My bread has lifted up his heel against Me. From now on, I am telling you before it happens, so that when it does happen, you may believe that I am He. Truly, truly, I say to you, the one who receives Me receives anyone I send. I'm sorry. Truly, truly, I say to you, the one who receives me receives anyone I send, receives me, and the one who receives me receives him who sent me. Uh, so we have this kind of intro uh, to what's going to happen here. Uh, and we see that Jesus chose them all, but not all of them were true converts, not all were genuine servants. But but that didn't take Jesus by surprise, right? This was no accident. Jesus doesn't choose people hoping how they're going to turn out, right? Jesus knows how they're going to turn out because he knows everything, past, present, and future. He knows what we're going to do. In fact, David said in Psalm 139, "'Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I get up. You understand my thought from far away. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, Lord, you know it all. And David goes on to talk about how you knew me before I was even in my mother's womb. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. So Jesus was not surprised that Judas turned out the way he did. He knew Judas. He formed Judas in the womb. And Jesus chose Judas knowing full well what Jesus, or Judas was going to do. And not only that, Jesus wanted his disciples to know that he knew what was going on. Uh, And that it was not a surprise to him. And in fact, he even knew why it was going to happen. He knew that it had to happen to fulfill scripture. Uh, He says uh, that this fulfilled scripture. And so uh, this here in Psalm, or I'm sorry, uh, when he talks about Psalm 41, uh, this is the second time in John's gospel out of six times during the Passion Week where, where John says, or Jesus says, this happened specifically to fulfill scripture. And that's why it's important for us that we still continue to study the Old Testament because the Old Testament lays the foundation for everything that we have in the New Testament. So uh, the Bible is progressive revelation, right? And we can only understand what we see in the New Testament when we look at it through the lens of the Old Testament. So why were the Jews waiting for a Messiah when Jesus came? Well, because the Old Testament predicted that a Messiah would be coming. And and how would they be able to identify their Messiah? Well, the Old Testament said where he would be born, where he would come from, what his line of descendancy would be, uh, the things he would do, the way he would suffer and die for our sins. So the Old Testament contains so much prophecy that has already been fulfilled, and yet there's so much more that remains to be fulfilled. But because of the Old Testament and because of continued revelation in the New Testament, we know that we should expect Jesus to come again to establish His kingdom on earth. Paul wrote, "...all Scripture is inspired and profitable uh, for teaching, for rebuke, for correction and righteousness. Uh, and Paul wrote that verse about the Old Testament, right? The New Testament had not yet been written. It was in the process of being written. So he was talking about the Old Testament when he wrote that verse. Well, Jesus's betrayal or, or I'm sorry, Judas's betrayal of Jesus was the fulfillment of Psalm 41:9. Now in Psalm 41, David had lamented the fact that a close associate uh, of his had uh, betrayed him, had, had gone against him. Uh, and this was somebody who had shared his bread with him, eaten at his table, and then still lifted up his heel against him. Now, most scholars think that, that this incident refers to uh, 2 Samuel uh, chapter 15-17, uh, through 17, where this man Ahithophel, who was a counselor to David, uh, turned on David and, and joined Absalom's coup against David's kingdom. Uh, Ahithophel was David's trusted servant who had eaten at his table, which was a sign that he had been accepted into his family and then uh, who betrayed him. This idea of lifting up the heel is an interesting phrase, right? We, we don't really use that phrase in our, in our culture. Uh, it could mean to walk out on a friend or to kick somebody when they're down, uh, which certainly Ahithophel did to David. Or it could be a cultural reference uh, at the time uh, in Israel, it was it was a social faux pas to ever let the soles of your feet uh, be shown. So, like if you went into somebody else's house and accepted a drink from them and put your feet up on the sofa, that would be a real cultural no-no. Uh, it would be a very insulting thing to show the bottom of your feet. But Jesus did—I'm uh, sorry—Judas did all of these things to Jesus. Right? He he walked out on him. He kicked him when he was down at the Last Supper, uh, and he insulted him by betraying him. But Jesus told them everything that would happen in advance so that they would remember uh, that when these things happened, that Jesus accurately predicted this. And of course, they would be reminded of the true test of a prophet from Deuteronomy was whether these prophets' predictions came true or did not come true. So Deuteronomy 18.22 says, "...when the prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, and the thing does not happen or come true, that this is the thing which the Lord has not spoken." The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You are not to be afraid of him. So a false prophet's prophecies don't come true. Jesus's prophecies do come true. And in fact, in time, his disciples would come to see him as the prophet uh, who was predicted by Moses in Deuteronomy 18.15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. From your countrymen, you shall listen to him. So Jesus, uh, in time, is seen as the greater Moses And Jesus said he wanted them to remember his prediction so that when they came true, that you would believe that I am he. Now, in the Greek, it doesn't have he at the end of the sentence. It just ends with I am. Jesus ended his statement uh, that you may believe that I am uh, I am is translated from the Greek Ego I me, uh, which is the same name that, Moses, that, that God gave to Moses when Moses asked his name at the Exodus in Exodus 3.14 at the burning bush. And it was the same statement, Ego I me, that Jesus used for himself throughout the Gospel of John uh, in his seven I am statements. Jesus said, I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world the door of the sheep, the good shepherd, the resurrection and the life, the way, the truth and the life, and the true vine. I am all of these things. Jesus invoked the divine name over and over again of himself, which was a clear claim to divinity, just like he made to the scribes and Pharisees in John 8:58 when he said, before Abraham was, I am invoking the divine name of God. Uh, so they, they understood what he was saying. Uh, and the reason that Jesus wanted them to remember these things was because he wanted them to believe. In fact, you know the whole purpose statement of John's gospel. Uh, John wrote it in chapter 20, verse 31. His purpose in writing was that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So Jesus makes predictions so that they will believe. John wrote his gospel so that they would believe. Uh, John uh, echoed Jesus' purpose. Uh, Jesus wanted them to believe. John wrote so that they would believe. So it's all about belief. It's all about faith. And then for those true disciples who had faith, for those true believers, in verse 20, uh, Jesus wants them to take the gospel to the world as his agents. So those who received the disciples received Jesus, and those who received Jesus sent God who sent Jesus, and the work was not finished. Though Jesus would have to die, uh, he would rise from the dead, and then he would commission the disciples to go out into the world and make disciples, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded and, and being baptized in the name, and lo, I'll be with you till the end of the age. So Jesus wants them to know these things. He wants them to know that he knows what's going to happen in advance so that they will believe. But interesting, in this upper room, uh, Jesus also wants Judas to know all that he is about to do. Uh, Jesus wanted Judas to know that rejecting Jesus meant that he was rejecting God who sent Jesus. Now this is a weighty thing, right? It's very weighty to say, I'm going to reject Jesus and in doing so, I'm going to reject God. But Jesus wanted Judas to have full knowledge so that when he did what he did, he would be fully accountable for doing the thing that he did to betray him. So Jesus spoke very generally in these verses, uh, almost difficult to understand what he's talking about in verses 18 18 to 20. But in the next section, he's gonna get very specific and very intimate with his disciples as Jesus uh, gives his last offer of grace to Judas. When Jesus had said these things, he he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, truly, truly I say to you that one of you will betray me The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. Lying back on Jesus' chest was one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved. So Simon Peter nodded to the disciple and said to him, Tell us who it is of whom he is speaking. He then simply leaned back on Jesus' chest and said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus then answered, That man is the one for whom I shall dip this piece of bread and give it to him. So when he had dipped the piece of bread, he took and gave it to Judas the son of Simon Iscariot. And after this, Satan entered him. Therefore, Jesus said to him, what you are doing, do quickly. Well, Jesus spoke prophetically because of his divine knowledge. Uh, He knew what would happen, but notice how intimate and how emotional the scene becomes here in these verses. Uh, He became troubled in spirit. Uh, Stirring up within him is is this uh, stress, uh, because he knows what's coming. The weight of all that's coming in the next few hours as that set in. Uh, try and picture yourself in that upper room, watching Jesus grapple with his emotions as he's uh, God on the one hand, a uh, human on the other hand, hundred percent both at all times, and he's he's in control of all things, but yet experiencing this human anguish uh, as he's as he's dealing with with these emotions of what's coming. So. We should never miss Jesus' humanity, how real he was, what a real person he was as we read the Gospels. He was fully God, but he was also fully man, and he experienced the same emotions that we do. And that's why he's able to identify with us in our grief, in our sorrow, and in our fears, and our anxiety, and our temptations. Uh, Jesus experienced all of those same emotions too and how brokenhearted he must have been uh, to announce that one of his very own disciples would betray him. Well, if Jesus was brokenhearted delivering this message, his disciples were shocked, right? Uh, in, in Matthew and Mark, uh, the disciples say, is it I? Uh, in Luke, they begin to question each other. Uh, in John here, uh, John identifies the betrayer. Uh, Most of you have probably seen the most famous painting of The Last Supper ever done by Leonardo da Vinci. Uh, And though you've seen it, uh, and probably our our minds have been influenced by this, we think that this is what it looked like. Uh, But da Vinci got the configuration of the table all wrong. This is not what it looked like at all. In fact, uh, they reclined at table, right? That's what it's called. And so it would have looked more something like this Uh, The table was called a triclinium, which is a three-sided, U-shaped kind of table uh, that they leaned uh, leaned down on with their heads facing forward, their feet facing backward. They would lean uh, on their left arm and then eat with their right arm uh, with their heads facing the table. And then servants would be able to come into the room and restock the table from uh, that open area that you see there. So with this picture in mind, we can think about how the, the, the disciples could have been arranged to figure out how the rest of the story went and to figure out how Judas or Jesus identified Judas as his betrayer. So first we have the disciple who Jesus loved, right? This is John, this is John's pet name for himself that he uses in the gospel. So he's leaning on his left arm and he's leaning back into Jesus. So he is probably directly on Jesus' right. Now, probably Peter was somewhere not too close because Peter has to motion to John and say, you know, who is he talking about? Uh, and so at that point, from John's position on the right of Jesus, he can lean back into Jesus and just lift his head and say, of which one is, is it that you are talking about? And it's at that point that, that Jesus answered, the one that I give this morsel to, he is the one. So we can't know for sure, but if Judas was close enough that Jesus could dip the bread in the morsel and hand it directly to to Judas, probably Judas was directly to his left, which was another, one of the two places of honor at the table. And isn't that something, that Jesus would grant Judas a place of honor at the table? Now, imagine the drama of Peter and John. They have some inkling of what's going on here, right? They don't know all that's going on, but they have some inkling, and And Jesus says, it's the one who I dip the bread in the bowl and hand this piece of bread to. So imagine this, waiting to see who Jesus would hand this piece of bread to. I'm sure they both must have been praying that he didn't hand it to them, right? Uh, Because they didn't know. Uh, But a host's giving a morsel to a guest was a sign of intimate friendship. And how ironic that Jesus' uh, act of friendship in handing that piece of bread to Judas was the very uh, trigger and signal that Judas was now to go and betray that friendship. Well, G- Jesus' offer to, to Judas was Judas's moment of decision. And it happened so fast that in the Gospels, nobody knew what was going on. They, they didn't know what was happening. So let's just try and slow the scene down a little bit, if we can. This must have been an intensely intimate moment, right, among two people, Jesus and his disciple, who had been following him for three-plus years. This is Jesus' last offer of grace to Judas. Judas, this is your last chance. I'm offering you the bread of life. I'm offering you myself. What are you going to do? Imagine Jesus looking into Judas' eyes and and waiting for Judas' decision Imagine Judas contemplating what he was considering, uh, especially on the heels of of Jesus just saying to him, he who rejects me rejects the father who sent me, knowing with full knowledge what Jesus was telling him. Uh, Jesus knew what Judas would do. But imagine Jesus, the anguish as he's watching the wheels turn in Judas's mind and in his heart, uh, and the pain in Jesus's heart as Judas decided And I imagine that as Jesus held out the morsel to Judas and as Judas reached out to grab it, I bet he looked down at his feet. I bet he couldn't even hold his gaze. I bet it was too much for him, the weight of the moment. I bet he couldn't even hold Jesus' gaze. And at that moment, Satan entered him. I think that means that, that Judas unwittingly allowed Satan to enter his heart, granting him permission uh, by letting his guard down and making a really bad decision. Uh, God ordained it, but Judas had a choice. And that's why God holds Judas responsible. In fact, in Matthew 24:26, it says this, the son of man is going away just as it is written about him. But woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born and so we see here uh, again god's sovereignty on the one hand and human responsibility on the other hand Uh, both god ordains what is is going to happen and still judas exercises his will in making this decision to betray jesus Uh, god prophesied about it his prophets prophesied about it and still god punishes judas for doing it and so Uh, this is hard for us to understand, right? Whenever we talk about sovereignty and free will, these are like parallel tracks on a railroad uh, and we just have a hard time with it. But we just have to be comfortable with the tension uh, that that we're not going to be able to reconcile these things and and understand that that God lives outside of time Uh, and he knows what's going to happen because in his mind, it's already happened. But for Judas, he makes his decisions in time, you know, literally in, in linear time. So uh, it, it's difficult for us to understand, but the Bible clearly teaches both God's sovereignty and human responsibility. And Jesus' pain must have been palpable, right in that upper room when he looked into Judas's eyes and saw that Judas had decided. Judas rejected Jesus' final offer of grace. And notice that Jesus didn't exercise his divine power to change Judas's mind, right? He allowed Judas the freedom to do what he did. He simply said, what you are doing, do quickly. You know, Jesus could make every person on earth believe in him if he wanted to, right? But coerced love is not love. A coerced love is simply that. It's coerced love. It's not voluntary. Jesus voluntarily offered himself on the cross to pay for the sin of mankind. That is true love and he offers us each one of us this gift of grace as well but he never coerces us to accept it because that's not real love Uh, god doesn't want to make us love him if he did want to make us love him he would have pre-programmed us like robots to love him but he wants us to choose to love him because love is not a duty or an obligation you love your children or your parents or whoever you love Uh, because of choice, because you see something beautiful in them. Uh, They're yours, and you love them. You can't imagine life without them. Uh, And that's how Jesus wants us to look at him. It's the same way that he looks at us. And so what's our choice? Jesus presents himself to each one of us, to you and me, uh, just as he presented himself to Judas. Uh, Jesus asks each of us, do you accept me? Do you receive me as your Lord and Savior, or do you you reject me? And the Father who sent me. And so we all face this same decision. Uh, for Judas, this was his last chance. We know from the other Gospels that, that Judas, after he did this, felt regret. He went out, he hung himself. Uh, but from, now, uh, from then to now and through all eternity, uh, Judas will continue to pay the penalty for his sins because he never confessed his sin, he never asked for Jesus' forgiveness, and he never received him as Lord and Savior. And so if you're in this room or you're hearing the sound of my voice and you have never received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, don't reject him today. Think of Jesus reaching out to you, asking you as though you were Judas, handing you that piece of bread. Do you accept me or do you reject me? We aren't promised tomorrow, right? We only have this life to decide. This is it. Uh, When we die or when Jesus returns, it will be too late. So what's our decision? Will we we receive or will we reject our Savior? The consequences are eternal. And I want you all and anyone hearing the sound of my voice to be in heaven. And the only way that you can be in heaven is if you receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And that's why I share the gospel in here every single week, just in case there's somebody here who still has not made that decision. All right, now back to the upper room. Let's talk about the disciples' confusion. Verses 28 to 30. Now, none of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. For some were assuming since Judas kept the money box that Jesus was saying to him, go buy the things we need for the feast or else that he was to give something to the poor. So after receiving the piece of bread, he went out immediately and it was night. Well, you know, as far as the rest of the disciples knew, Judas was as much a disciple as the rest of them were. Uh, They didn't know any different. Uh, now, Peter and John, of course, at the, at the uh, Last Supper, they knew something was amiss, something wasn't quite right. Uh, but they didn't know exactly what was going on. They didn't know what he meant when he said, what you are doing, do quickly. So they must not have overheard the whole conversation or there were some pieces missing. Uh, nothing had fallen completely into place. And, and even if they did understand betray, like, did they know what that meant? What did it mean to betray and the consequences of that betrayal? I think they were very confused. Now remember, John wrote his gospel decades after these events, right? With, with the hindsight and the wisdom and the revelation of the Holy Spirit to know exactly what had happened. Jesus promised you'll receive the Holy Spirit, He will bring all these things to your remembrance. Mm-hmm. Uh, And so they had time to figure it out. And decades later, he could write, well, Judas had hold of the money bag and he used to help himself to whatever was in it, or, you know, that Judas was a traitor. But in the moment, in the moment, in that upper room, the disciples were confused. They had no idea what was going on. They thought Jesus was telling Judas to go out and buy something they needed to eat or give something to the poor. They just didn't know. Their confusion was full on that night. And then Jesus added at the end, or I'm sorry, John added at the end of the verse that it was night. I mean, why add this historical detail? Of course it was night. It was the Thursday night before the Passover. Uh, historically, it was accurate, but, you know, why the nuanced detail? Well, the reason is because John was speaking symbolically. It was the symbol of night that was so important at this point. Uh, Judas went out at night into the darkness, and the darkness swallowed him up. The darkness was the blackness of his own heart, his own greed, his own ambition, his willingness to trade Jesus for a few silver coins, and his decision that allowed Satan into his heart. Now John is famous, of course, for contrasting light and darkness in his Gospels and his epistles. Most famously in John chapter 1, verse 5, the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness did not comprehend it. And John three nineteen, and this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and the people loved the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. So in these two verses, we see the summation of what's happened in Judas's life. Judas never comprehended Jesus and he hardened his own heart against him and committed this treacherous deed. He rejected the light and chose the darkness. Not only was this an hour of darkness for Judas, this was also Jesus' greatest hour of darkness too, as he was about to agonize emotionally and spiritually in the Garden of Gethsemane and then physically by whips and chains and ultimately crucifixion. And on the cross, he would be separated from God the Father for the first time in all eternity as he took the sin of mankind on himself and received the punishment in our place for our sins what love the Savior has for us. Let's think about some applications as we close. And the first one is this, guard your heart. What went on in Judas's mind and heart? What went on in Robert Hansen's mind and heart as he betrayed the United States for money? How do you get to the point where uh, you appear to be a follower of Jesus uh, and, and uh, just like Judas and Hanson, you're there like everybody else is. You're doing the things that followers of Jesus do, and yet your heart is dark, and it's corroded, and it's, it's festering inside. How does this happen? Well, I don't think it happens all at once, right? We don't jump off a cliff into this darkness. It happens gradually, day by day, as we allow ourselves to fall into sin and temptation. Sin is a hungry beast that is never satisfied, Sin is a slippery slope to more sin uh, that leads to death. And the more we flirt with it, the more we are in danger of surrendering our own selves to, to Satan. So we have to remember that every day, every single day, we are in a spiritual battle for our minds and our hearts and our souls. Every day, Satan prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. He never tires, He never runs out of schemes. He never says, that one is too far in God's camp. I have no shot with this one. No, that's the one that Satan attacks all the more. Uh, So the more you're living for God, the harder he comes for you. And if we open the doors of our hearts just a tiny bit, just a crack to Satan, he will rush right in and he will enter into our hearts just like Satan entered into Judas' So he shows us a little bit of money, or he shows us something shiny and new uh, that we think that we can't live without. And when we take the bait, Satan sets the hook, and he ruins our lives. So we have to guard our hearts. We should be constantly examining ourselves, examining our lives for areas of sin or where we're prone to temptation and slam the door on it before we find ourselves in a position like Judas and like Robert Hansen, firmly in Satan's grip. So guard your heart. But second, remember that no one is beyond God's reach. You know, we we just can't possibly fathom the love of God that is so deep that he would sacrifice his own son for us or Jesus's love that he would go to the cross for the very enemies who were going to kill him for Judas's sins, for our sins. It's really staggering when you think about it. You know, are we worthy of this? Well, no, of course we're not worthy of this. That's why it's called grace. But I think sometimes we get caught up up and, and think, you know, I have been so evil. I have done so many bad things that there is no way that Jesus could ever possibly love me. And I want you to know that that is a lie from Satan. That is one of his schemes. And so Jesus died for all and wants all to receive him as Lord and Savior. He even offered grace to Judas, the one who would betray him. So who won't he offer grace to? The answer is no one. He offers this grace to everyone. So maybe uh, you have relatives who have not yet been saved or friends or, or neighbors or whoever else, and, and you're grieved because they just seem like they're beyond help and beyond hope. Don't be discouraged, just keep on praying and, and maybe someday they will believe. Ask God to do a mighty work in them and maybe one day they too will be saved because no one is beyond God's reach. And lastly, remember that Jesus is in control. He was in control of everything that happened during this Passion Week of his, right? While everybody is running around in a huff, you know, the the scribes and Pharisees trying to get him on the cross, Pilate has no idea what to do with him, Jesus is the only one who is fully in control as all these events are going on. And not only that, he's fully in control of our lives, too. And he's fully in control of the world. And as we look around at the world and we see what's going on in the Ukraine and and everything else that's happening in the world, we need to learn to have peace in the world because Jesus is in control of it. He could prophesy accurately about the future because he's already written it. And you and I have read how the story ends. And we know that Jesus wins so that we can have peace in the world. But in the meantime, he doesn't promise us an easy life, right? Jesus had his own trouble, and and so we should not be surprised when we have trouble. And he doesn't promise us that we won't have trouble, but he does promise us that we have the indwelling Holy Spirit who lives with us and guides us in our lives. And he also promises a future eternity in heaven with him for all of his true followers. Strength for today, bright hope for tomorrow. Jesus is in control. It's the hope we have this Easter season. Amen? Amen. Lord God, we thank you. Lord, even for Judas, we thank you. Uh, It was in your sovereignty the means that you chose to accomplish were set into motion the things that would accomplish the salvation of mankind, Lord. And uh, these are things that are difficult for us to understand, Lord, and yet we are just so grateful for it because by Jesus' act of sacrifice, our sins are paid for. So we thank you for this, Lord. And as we uh, continue to think about Easter and Good Friday that are upcoming, Lord, uh, we just confess our love for Jesus and our gratitude for all he's done. Lord, prepare our hearts for this Easter season, we ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen.